Men who mean just what they say The brave men of the Green Beret Silver wings You know, it's not every day you get to talk to a former Green Beret and it's my pleasure to do that today. We're talking to Zach Fuller, a founding partner of Silent Sector, a cybersecurity firm, about our favorite subject. And yes, he does happen to be a former Green Beret. I hope you enjoy the episode. You could restore it Hi, and welcome to Backup Central's Restore It All podcast. I'm your host, W. Curtis Preston, a.k.a. Mr. Backup, and I have with me a guy that is determined to cause me to spend every last dollar I have on stuff, Prasanna Maliandi. How's it going, Prasanna? The, I... I'm a little offended by that. I don't know if I <laughs> really. I don't know if it's every single dollar, but it I would probably say it's at way. least fifty cents on the dollar. <laughs> <laughs> you keep sending me cool stuff. You're like, hey, have you heard of this thing? This cool thing? Because you did. You did sort of convince me. Remember that there was. Uh, you know, I wanted to replace the front door uh, mm-hmm. lock. Right. At, well, I needed to. And uh, because the, the key broke off in the in the deadbolt, it wouldn't work anymore. And so my wife was like, "You should get one of those smart lock things." So then I was looking at stuff that costs like like a hundred dollars, and you're like, "Have you looked at this one that costs two hundred dollars? It's much better." And now you're and now you August basically you talked me into the August lock, which by the way has been great. I bought See? the August lock for my front door. Um, and, and it's pretty cool to, you know, the, the coolest feature of the August lock is that if I have my smartphone with me, it, it unlocks, uh, as I'm walking up to the front door, right? Uh, That's an optional feature. I I don't know if that's probably the best feature for you. I think the best feature for you is locking, ensuring that the door is locked, (laughs) right? I think that's, are you saying that I'm absent-minded and that? That no for me personally would be the best feature. No comment. <laughs> yeah. So just so you know, it's it's just funny that you said. So what? So what happened is you sent me today this link of, hey, did you know? So they also sell a key, right? Because mine is the one. The one that I bought is the one that goes on the back of the door. So from the mm-hmm. front of the door, it looks just like I have a normal uh, deadbolt. Lock. Yeah. Um, and that's the way the, I like that mer- method versus, you know, it's the whole security by obscurity. It's something right. Um, and so I don't have somebody driving past my house trying to hack my smart lock. Unless they listen um, to this podcast. Unless they listen to this <laughs> podcast. All they, all they know, they'll, they'll know all they need to do is steal my smartphone. Cause I did turn on that, that feature, yeah. which I don't know, at least right now, I still really enjoy having the door say, hello, Curtis, welcome home. Yeah. And, Opening, uh, uh, so it's just funny that you sent me this this thing, the, the keypad. Mm-hmm. As you were sending me that, I was in the process of ordering the August, uh, the lock for my two other doors. Doors. So, <laughs> Telling you, I, I, and you know, it's your right <laughs> is the feature the feature that I enjoy the most, and which is what causing me to buy it is the fact that I I. 
turn on the feature that basically says after a time period that you determine the longest of which is 30 minutes is that it locks the door automatically. And the back door, again, if anyone's listening to this podcast, the back door has a, has a habit of seemingly Being coming left. unlocked and uh, left unlocked for, and then I'll come down at some random time and notice you, the back door is unlocked. So, so you should be careful though, Curtis, just given your tendency to sometimes leave your phone elsewhere, you probably want to make sure you don't get locked out of the house, right? Especially if all of them, like maybe your garage door, you may not so, want to have auto lock. We, we've discussed <laughs> this. We've discussed this. Uh, let's just say, given who I am, there are backup systems in place. Okay. Um, <clears throat> and also, we've gotten into the habit of locking the front door as we leave via our smartphone. Okay. Right? So since I'm using the phone to... Uh, you always have it with it. you. I, I, yeah, I always have it with me. And also, if I can call anyone else who lives here, which there are three other people who live yeah. here, I could call them and I could say, can you unlock the, the, the door. my front door? Yeah. Now, here's a question for are, Which is pretty cool. Here's a question for you. Yeah. Do you remember any of their numbers? Um. <laughs> Because so, because because my case, wife's right? number, I know my wife's number, okay. and I know my daughter's number. I do not know my son-in-law's number. Okay, that's okay. At least you know two out of the three, so that's fine. Because I was just thinking, like, <clears> a lot of people like with smartphones these days, they don't know people's numbers anymore. You just look it up, and you're like, yeah. "Hey, call so and so." If I was, if I was at a payphone, like what what would that be? Like, a, a, is there a payphone anywhere? Or you just um, walk over to your neighbors, right? You're like, "Hey, can I borrow your phone?" I don't talk to my neighbor. <laughs> Oh, my name, the neighbor on that side would go bleepity bleep. No, <laughs> no, not gonna, uh, yeah. so on I'm not going to. I'm sorry. I don't know. I don't know what they're. Yeah. So I'm sorry for getting you to spend extra money. <laughs> but not really. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Especially at a time right now. Uh, you know, well, we don't know when this episode goes live at a time right now when I am currently, as we say, looking for opportunities. Uh <laughs> So, you know, need to preserve cash. Cash is king yeah. right now. But uh, anyway, um, let us get on to our guest. He's probably like, like, what are you guys talking yeah. about? Just blabbering yeah. on about yeah. smart As logs. I thought this was like something else. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we have, uh, a, I think, um, a very interesting guest today. He's actually a former member of the Special Forces turned cybersecurity expert. He's a co-host of the Cyber Rants podcast and a founding partner of Silent Sector. I like that phrase, a company that builds cybersecurity programs for B2B companies. I'm pretty sure he's our first former Green Beret on the show. Welcome to the show, Zach Fuller. Thank you, Curtis. Pleasure to be here. Always nice to have a fellow veteran. I was uh, I was not in the Special Forces. I was in the... Um, uh, I was in the, the phrase we used to say was there ain't no sense running around the bushes. If there's no war, I was in the Navy. Right. Um, and, um, cause I was in the Navy. Technically most of my time was during peacetime, but I did, I was in during the OG modern war operation desert storm. Uh, we actually invaded Kuwait on my birthday in whatever year that was to was that like 2000? 90. 90. Yeah, you're right. It was in the it was 90s, 90s, wasn't it? 
Yeah. 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 90, yeah. like 91. Um, and I, I have, I, I, I absolutely credit where I am today with the, the years that I spent in the Navy. And I'm sure you do as well. Um, you know, it looks like you were in about the same amount of time as I was. I spent five years in, I was 2004 to 2009. So it seemed, seems like a, a long time ago, <laughs> but at the same time, it seems that time has flown by. I don't know where it went, but, um, but, uh, yeah, here, yeah, here we are and I wouldn't trade it for the world, but <laughs> Uh, it's a rougher lifestyle than being than doing what I do now. I'll tell you that. My, I have soft keyboard hands now, um, and, and a sore back. <laughs> yeah, I, I um, I, you know, I I went in the Navy. You know, for for those that you know, you know, for whatever, it's a podcast. You don't want to listen to me. You're on the wrong podcast. <laughs> um, but back in the day, so I went in the Navy for a very specific reason. I was working real jobs, right? Like, like, you know, for, for companies with paychecks from the time I was 15. And when I, um, like I worked part-time as a, as a phone salesman, um, I was selling carpet cleaning and police benevolent association stuff. I sold cars. I worked at McDonald's by the time I turned 21 in boot camp, I had had 19 jobs. Wow. Right. And, and I, I went into the Navy, uh, specifically with the goal of having a job that I couldn't quit because I had, I know this is going to come as a great surprise. I had an issue with authority and, um, Are you really, I was Curtis, like, really? yeah, yeah. And I, you know, so I went in the Navy to have a job that I couldn't quit. And I remember, I, I still remember the moment, my first, you know, we'll call it F you moment. Right. The moment where typically when I was a civilian, I would have said F you and I would have walked out and that would have been then I wouldn't would have wouldn't gotten another job. Right. And that was the moment that uh, an E9. So that's a senior chief an E9 uh, in my mind, an E9 asked me to move this thing. You know, it was something simpler, like move this chair from there to there. And I said something along the lines of at the time, I didn't think I was arguing. I didn't think I was just disobeying an order. I just was like, well, I think it makes more sense for the chair to be over there, whatever, whatever it was. Mm. Right. And, and he immediately just went to, to 11. Right. And he just was like, let me explain to you the E9 E4 relationship. I say you do thinking is beyond your bleeping pay grade. Right. And I remember thinking at that exact moment, Okay, Curtis, this is this is what you this is that moment that you this is what you signed up for. And I did not say those magic words. I did not get booted out of the Navy and uh and here I am. How about you? Um well I, I definitely have have been tuned up by higher enlisted before, so you're not alone there. Um that's uh that yeah, saying that to an E nine's never never a good idea. <laughs> it's basically whatever they say you do. If jump off that cliff, better jump off that cliff because the ramifications are gonna be less than if you don't. But um yeah, that being said, I mean I was I was just felt drawn to the the military um in nine eleven happened when I was in high school and i mm. you know and then I went on to on to college and was at university of colorado and i was kind of i kind of felt I was doing fine in school, but I didn't feel that challenge that I was looking for at that point in life and i had i just felt this calling to 
go join the military and then and then um in the the there was an opportunity if you could go through all the assessment and selection process and all that you could go from civilian to becoming a green beret um rather than prior they you had to be in the army for a handful of Hmm. years and like infantry or something so having that opportunity passing all the tests going through selection getting selected going through the um, qualification course for about two years um, was just a that was the challenge i was looking for you know and that that was a game changer for me and just was the you know brought brought me to that next notch of maturity that i really needed at that that point in life and and so i i wouldn't trade it for the world you know i got to work with guys that you know small team of guys that are the best in the world at what they do they there's and there's no place else they would have rather been you know so it's kind of funny because it's just an incredible environment to work in incredible people we went out we did our operations overseas global war on terror um and did some amazing things. Now, when my enlistment came to an end, being a naive 20 something mid mid twenties at the time, I thought that that's how the rest of the world operated. You know, where you, <laughs> you could ask, you could tell somebody to do something and it was basically already done. Even if time hadn't caught up yet, there was no checking in to see if it had happened or anything like that. And so going from that environment into the business world was an eye opener and it, it, it took a lot of adjustment in expectations and, and how things work and operate. But I love it. I wouldn't trade it for the world. I we learned a lot during that time that I wouldn't have picked up anywhere else. And, and I try to, uh, share those, those, those concepts and those methodologies and ideas that we ran by in the unconventional warfare world and share those with business leaders, with technical, technical leaders and, and, um, people just getting started in their careers as well. Um, so lots, yeah, I could, I could talk all day about that stuff. It's a fun, um, group to be around because there's, they don't, they don't accept anything but the best, the very Mm. best performance all the time, but they also have fun doing it. And there's lots of jokes. There's lots of laughs. laughs. It's where they want to be. So, um, yeah, I, I just, um, got so much out of that. People as a veteran, people will come up and say, thank you for your service. I say, well, thank you for your tax dollars. First of all, because you probably wasted a lot of them. Thank, Thank you for the paycheck. Yeah. And, and also it's, you know, really it's the, 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 the pleasure is mine to be able to, to do that and, and, in that environment. So, so what made you go from that into cybersecurity? Like how, why choose this area? So I was always, uh, I was always kind of a, um, well, not kind of, it was definitely an, an, you know, tech nerd growing up. I spent lots of time on computers, grew up in tech family. Both my parents worked in Silicon Valley and and, um, so I was on computers since I was as young as I could remember, you know, starting with the Apple IIe and, uh, going up from there. But I got started getting kicked out of computer classes for hacking the networks and locking teachers out of their own systems and stuff. And, in uh, that was in middle school. Um, so six, thank you for your grade. service. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, um, I, I had fun, you know, breaking stuff and putting it back together. And I think that's the root of a lot of people in cybersecurity. Now, um, I took a different path though. I realized that, uh, 
when it, what it came down to really is I realized that and uh, later on in middle school and high school, I realized girls weren't super interested in my tech skills. <laughs> so now, now it's a cooler thing, you know, but now, but back then you, you know, they weren't very interested in that stuff, but, um, I actually took a path of more the entrepreneurial realm. And so started building websites for companies when that was a cutting edge thing to have a website. I started outsourcing work to Russia that I didn't know how to do at the time before outsourcing was really a known thing. I found developers that could do work that I didn't know how to do for much cheaper than it could be done here in the U S and so, um, did that and, and really took an interest in the entrepreneurial side, the business, um, development and so on. And, so I did, did different ventures um, throughout my career, even in a college, ran exterior painting company, <laughs> door, I've done everything from door to door sales to, you know, implement Salesforce for, or, you know, mid-market companies. So um, I had a lot of, a lot of crossover between that tech and then that business development world. Um, after the army, I went into uh, the real estate, private equity world, well, real estate investment world because it was 2009 and everybody said how terrible real estate was and stay away from it. So being the hard headed person that I <laughs> tend to be sometimes, that's exactly where I went is where I was told not to go. So, um, that was fun. Learned a lot. Um, helped a private equity company build and grow and, and, and just build a tremendous organization. But, um, I realized that what I got to do in the army was I, I got to protect great people and our nation from kind of behind the scenes doing things that people never really hear about. I mean, some of the stuff made the news, but it, it, who was behind it never, never came out. Right. And so I thought that was a really awesome thing. And I, I really felt called to be able to protect our nation again in some way. Um, I wasn't necessarily going to do it by slinging lead and high explosives again. That, that was, you know, my, my prior life. Um, but I recognize there's a need in the cybersecurity realm. Uh, when we started Silent Sector in 2016, we're starting to see our uptick in um, breaches on the news, and it was becoming more and more, uh, these these activities of cyber criminals were becoming more prevalent, and the, the public was becoming more aware of them. So I said, well, you know, there's probably something that needs to be done here, something that we can do different, and um, that's that's really how I entered into this industry um, you know, you know, and, and have two incredible partners that both have 25 years as, um, you know, both in, in technical and leadership roles in cybersecurity. So, um, the three of us came together, brought different skill sets, and we said, Hey, let's build this thing. Let's do something different. And that's what we've been doing. And it's been, it's been great. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I, I like that. <clears throat> you know, I, I liked hearing, sort of applying the stuff that you learned in the military. I, I think there's things that I learned in the military that have stuck with me, but for me, it was longer ago than you. So I think I learned things and then forgot that that's where I learned them. <laughs> one, one, of, one of the thing that um, when I think back on things is one thing that I learned, in, at least in my military or my part of the military, was the value of well-tested documentation, um, because which which I'm thinking was not a was not a situation in your in your field, but uh, I mean you've got You'd well be surprised. <laughs> okay, all right. Yeah, uh, yeah. Probably explosives are probably very well documented. So we had this um, uh, the system for doing preventative maintenance on the equipment. I was in electronics. I was in 
Um, uh, I operated and maintained the video system for the flight deck of an aircraft carrier, and then also the, the lighting system that allowed the planes to land in the same spot every time. And uh, we had a system for um, doing preventative maintenance on these, uh, on these systems, and they had, those procedures had to be vetted and vetted and vetted and tested and then put onto a card. Those procedures you you lived and died by. You had this card and you followed it. Even if you were trained in that piece of equipment, you followed that card step by step by step. And and that's the way when I think about like cyber recovery, disaster recovery, that's the way the procedure should be. It should be fully tested and vetted to the point that you should be able you should be able to hand it to a um a, a technically proficient person who isn't familiar with the process and they should be able to execute the plan um what what do you think about that yeah absolutely well i was i was i was kind of laughing over here when you're saying the system because i was thinking well in the army they're saying is if it ain't broke fix it until it is and so <laughs> So that's, that's their version. But no, um, yeah. seriously, it, no, that's exactly it. Um, I, I think of it in terms of airborne operations, right? And jumping out of airplanes, um, the riggers have a tremendous job in getting the chutes packed the same exact way every single time. And it is meticulously done. There's no room for variance. There's not in, in there. So I think regardless of all joking aside, regardless of where you are in the military and those listening with military backgrounds, I think that's a tremendous asset to bring into your security program, especially when you're talking about incident response, disaster recovery. We, we find a lot of organizations in the mid market, and emerging size company space will have, and I'm sure this is true in you know large enterprise in a lot of cases too. But there's a lot of times the IRDR plans are uh, very loosely put together, if at all, oftentimes off a template that has been downloaded from somewhere, um, and they're not necessarily kept up and maintained. So one best practice is that. Um, if you can, I mean, I, I say everybody can do this. It's whether they'll make time or not, but right. do tabletop exercises once a quarter, dust off that IRDR plan and work through it. Um, even if you're not doing um, a, a actual full blown exercise, just a, 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 a tabletop will tell you a lot about where things are and will will bring up a lot of um, considerations and, and not enough companies do that. A lot of times it's, yeah, we, you know, we built out our plan and it, we haven't looked at it in three years. So, you know, right out of the military, I went into a bank and that that's where I got my start in it. And we were required by the OCC, right? That's the office of controller of currency. We were required by the OCC to do a DR test twice a year. And so, you know, that comment that you made when you got out of the military, you were surprised that, um, that people, you know, that when people are told to do something, they don't just, they just don't do it. Right. Um, I was surprised when I left the bank to find out that everybody didn't do that. Right. Uh, so to me, this idea of a, having a well-documented, uh, DR plan that you then test it, uh, at, at least once a year, uh, you know, we did it every six months. And um, that the, the way we did it was we would take the plan and we would hand it to someone else, right? 
Zach, you seem like you know what you're doing. You're the new guy. Here's the documentation. Follow it while I stand in the background and figure out what I missed. <laughs> right? That, that's that's the real way to do a test. And I am I am I I don't know. I'm continually surprised. I don't know, persona or no, I'm, I'm continually I'm, surprised at the people that don't do the basics, let alone yeah. th- this well, kind of stuff. What do yeah, you think, and, Persona? Yeah, no, and I agree with that. And as I was actually going to ask Zach, I'm like, for customers you've been talking to, how many of them actually have a IR or DR plan documented? Forget about actually testing it or verifying it, but even actually having a plan that seems feasible for recovering their environment. Yeah, it's it's more more rare than it should be. We we work because we work with a lot of mid market and and smaller organizations. These aren't startups and stuff, but these are you know established companies. They're in compliance regulated industries, healthcare, financial services, uh, defense contractors, all that. And and the ones that tend to be a little more on top of it are the ones that are uh, the, their hands are forced, right? They have an audit um, on an annual basis or every three years even. And, and so they, they kind of have to do something about it. Um, so it's, it's, it's much more prevalent than it should be to not have any type of, of DR plan. I mean, even, even just lack of independent backup solutions, you know, companies, Hey, we're, well, we're in AWS. Okay. Well, where, where else? (laughs) (laughs) No, well, you know, AWS, Amazon's exactly. It's like, no, that's not how it works. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's not, um, as prevalent as it should be. The other thing too, is the, the quality and then making assumptions that people actually know what to do. So I like Curtis, your, your methodology, hand it to somebody else. What we do is we've created a gamified approach that actually involves dice and everything. So think of like a dungeons Mm. and dragons type type situation. We're rolling dice and then we're figuring out, well, what's the scenario that's next is the next scenario is, Hey, John is, um, head of IT and is the one that usually runs all this for us, but he's out in the mountains for a week and we can't get a hold of him. So who's next? And then and then on down the line. And then another thing that can be done is uh, oftentimes these exercises are in uh, group format, whether it be remote or actually sitting around a conference table. Well, instead of that, maybe we kick it off. We let everybody know, hey, this is going to happen at some point this week. Be expecting a phone call. So they know this is part of the exercise, but we actually kick it off in a live chain like it actually would go down in real life. Hey, somebody, you know, is getting um, bug pulled, you know, pulled out of their meeting or whatever. And we're going through this sequence of events in order to follow their plan. So um, a lot of ways you could go about it, but I think just making the time to do it is is something that should be on the calendar um, minimum once a year. But we, you know, two to four is ideal. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think <clears throat> I like that idea of, of gamifying it, right? I, I, I just see, I mean, just in general, the idea of gamifying it, I like mm-hmm. that. Uh, you know, I like, I've got this idea, you know, you got this dice, you're like, and, w- and what do we win? You get a zero a day exploit. <laughs> Let's go, <laughs> right? I like it. I like it. Um, yeah, I, I, I think maybe because when i think back to those uh those dr tests that we did and this is way before anyone said the word ransomware um although uh, as i've been studying up uh on ransomware uh, it turns out ransomware has actually been around longer than i thought i first started hearing about it in 2014 but it's actually goes all the way back to believe it or not the 80s there was a ransomware case in the 80s but it wasn't really a a, a thing uh and I, I think it's been um 
it's been Bitcoin and things like that that have really, I think, enabled it right in the in the in the recent era. So when I think back to those days, I remember those being high stress events, right? We only did it once every six months. We wanted it to be successful. Successful was defined as the recovery worked and Curtis didn't have to get involved, right? So, you know, I handed it to Zach, Zach followed the procedures and the recovery was 100% successful and I didn't have to do anything. We were never successful by that by that standard, but we learned a lot along the way. And so the point was that it was an incredibly stressful situation. So I think this idea of gamifying it and doing it more often and having it, you know, just something that we do uh, as a way of both um, creating the esprit de corps as well as um, increasing knowledge and doing it more often um, that's actually, a, I think, a fascinating idea um, versus what what we used to do. I, um, what do you think, Persona? Yeah, no, I think doing things more often, like practice makes perfect, you know, and you can't predict each and every single one of these events, right? Like you were saying, Zach, you roll the dice and it might be this scenario or that scenario, but at least you're going through and getting used to the process and what things look like and dealing with that because when it really happened it's going to be a very high stress environment right but if you know how people are going to react how they behave you've gone through these exercises it builds up the confidence that you can handle whatever comes your way so i just realized i haven't thrown out our disclaimer uh persona and i work for different companies and uh we're not representing either of them on this podcast this is an independent podcast and the opinions that you hear are ours, not necessarily theirs. And uh, be sure to rate us uh, by going to your favorite podcatcher. Scroll down to the stars and give us all the all the stars. You know, unless you A hate billion. us, then don't bother rating us. <laughs> if if you hate us, don't rate us. I like that. I've never said that before. Um, you know, it helps other people find the the episode and, and share it with your friends, um, assuming that you have friends that care about their data. And uh, also. <laughs> Uh, if you'd like to be part of the conversation, just reach out to me. I'm easy to find. I'm at WC Preston on Twitter, WCurtisPreston at Gmail. Uh, and you can also find me at LinkedIn.com slash IN slash MR Backup. And, uh, you know, we'll get you on the show. We love talking to other people that care about data. So, um, Zach, let's talk about some of the things that have been happening uh, in the news lately. And I'm going to start with this, um, the Veeam story. And this one frustrates me a lot. And by the way, I'm just going to right up front say I am not upset with Veeam, right? This is not an issue with Veeam um, because there was a vulnerability announced in March, which as of this recording is two months ago. They patched the vulnerability days, uh, I don't know exa the exact number of days, but it was very shortly after the announcement uh, of the vulnerability. And then you would think that every Veeam customer would then immediately apply the patch. But I'm pretty sure you saw this same news article that came out a couple of days ago. And it was, I forgot which federal agency, but it was some federal agency basically saying, hey, uh, we've been looking out there and this Veeam exploit that happened two months ago is still in the wild, meaning that there are still attacks that are happening because of it. There are still, there was some company or some entity, I don't remember if it was an agency or some like threat hunter out there 
they went out and just scanned for vulnerable Veeam servers. And the number was in the, like the five digits. And that just, I don't know what to think about that, Zach. Cause, it, cause you know, I mean, tell, tell me, if, well, first off, tell me if you agree with me, like if you do nothing else, right. Good passwords, MFA pass or, and patch management. Like if you, if you do nothing else from a cybersecurity perspective, those three will go a long way. Right. Oh. Um, but, but here we have, like, this is, this is, you know, the backup system is, I like to say it, it, it's, it's Helm's Deep. I don't know if you get the Lord of the Reference reference or Lord, Lord of the Rings reference there, but, um, you know, it's, it's the final line of defense and you're not patching it. I, I, how, how do you deal with that out there? Well, yeah, so that's, and that's not patching with, you know, the, the Veeam, uh, the Veeam vulnerability aside, that's, I mean, that's prevalent throughout everything, right? The CVE right. comes out and, and, um, there's, there's a known vulnerability. The vendors are generally very good about patching them quickly and getting notice out to their customers and everything else. So, and so that's you want, uh, Zach. You want to define uh, CVE for those that aren't familiar with the term? Yeah, CVE is your your essentially your vulnerability database. So every vulnerability that's identified by researchers out there has a number associated with it, and the year and such. And so you can basically pull up a, a, a list um, and look at all the you know, vulnerabilities for a certain uh, type of environment or um, scanners run off of these. So if you're running a vulnerability scanner, it'll match up a known vulnerability with a potentially exploitable um, uh, device. Now, it doesn't mean that device is actually exploitable. There are false positives. There are deeper layers of control and so on. But um, it's a it's a methodology of marking a um, a vulnerability with a, a specific number so you can go back and, and look it up, right? And, and identify what's there. Yeah, I think it's critical vulnerabilities and exploits, I think. But yeah, it, I think it, that's right. Yeah, this database where, and it's like CVE-0975. Um, and, and that tells you, like in case the Veeam vulnerability, there is a CVE number uh, so that everybody knows the same. So that we're all, we're all on the same page. Yeah, exactly. And then, and then your scanning tools will market, you know, you generally like one through five rating or one through 10. And, um, so you'll have a different severity level, um, depending on what it is and so on. Now, again, that doesn't tell you the true exploitable nature of that, but, um, it's, it gives you an idea of where to look when something's wrong. So one of the things companies need to be doing is continuous vulnerability scanning. So the whole vulnerable, oh, we scan once a quarter for PCI compliance, that just doesn't doesn't cut it. They should be running continuous scans because it's simple to do. The tools are out there, especially externally. I mean, internally too, ideally, but um, at, at a minimum, do continuous external scanning. So these vulnerabilities are popping up um, and you're seeing them. And that way you're not trying to keep up with the articles and such that are coming out or the, the notifications from the vendors. Those scanning tools that you're paying for, whatever, whether it's Qualys or Nessus Rapid7, whatever, whatever tool you're using, there's a bunch of them out there, but they're, they're constantly loading their databases with these new vulnerability signatures. And so if you're running this continuously, you're, you're 
you have a third party um, provider of the scanner platform that's that's loading these signatures in. So they're on the ball because that's their business. They're you know, very, very quick with this stuff. So you should be getting red flags and getting, getting notifications when a new vulnerability is identified. So the problem is mo a lot of organizations in the mid market and emerging space are, it's been often a year or more since they've done a vulnerability scan, if, if ever. Um, and so it's, it, they, a lot of the, you know, it like MSPs and things they are focused more on, the day-to-day -day operational things and running running tools like antivirus, managing firewalls and such. But this this proactive activity of vulnerability scans, vulnerability scans, the first thing that's going to tell you, um, you know, whether it's Veeam or anything else, if you have something to look at, look deeper into. So, and then you get into the patch management whole discussion, and that's a thorn in the side for lots of organizations. But um, you can't look to go, you know, jump on a patch out of your normal schedule if you don't even know that that vulnerability is there. So, so two questions for you, Zach. I think that all makes sense. Uh, the first is, what is the category? Like if someone wanted to look up a category for what these vulnerability scanning tools are called, what would they go search for? I know you gave a couple of vendors, but what's that general category of tool called? Yeah, I, I just look up network vulnerability scanners. Um, you can, yeah, there's there's um there's a hand the big names really are are Qualys, um, Nessus. You got um, Tenable. You know, there's a couple others, but you but they're all going to accomplish really similar things. It just depends on your your budget and such. And and then the other question I had also is especially since you've been talking a lot about sort of small and medium businesses. Do you find, though, that these tools are practical for these organizations, either from a budget cost perspective or even from a skill set perspective? Because some of these organizations are very strapped when it comes to IT personnel, especially. And in addition to that, you're looking at someone who's like cybersecurity focused. And so is this something that they can easily pick up and start to use? Or is this such a burden for the organization that they're like, hey, we have 50 other things to deal with. I can't worry about this. Yeah, they can easily hire a third-party provider uh, to to run continuous scanning. We're talking a couple hundred bucks a month, depending on the size of their their environment. Um, it can't larger it, it is, of course, the more time it takes to actually look at those scans. So you want to you can you can always hire a third party, and it's mm -hmm. it's pretty simple, pretty inexpensive um, for a lot of companies some of the tools can be pretty costly. So for a lot of the companies, it's much more cost effective. If you have, you know, five or 10 external IPs, you might as well just have a service provider do that for you. Mm -hmm. And then um, hopefully that service provider also has an actual human looking at the scan results, right? So not just kicking you a scan report, but even if they kick you a scan report, um, you, you can teach somebody pretty quickly how to look through those. And most of them are just Excel exports. So you okay. can just sort them however you'd like. Uh, if there's specific IPs, things that you want to focus on, or say you want to only look at severity four and five, then we, you could, you could do that um, really simply with Excel. So it's not, um, it doesn't get too technical. And I think the time it takes, even if you're looking at those yourself, um, it's, it's well worth it compared to the cost, cost of, of not doing it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. And, and where do those, cause I know I've also seen a number of, um, uh, sort of automated pen test, pen testing as a service. 
So this is like vulnerability scanning as a service. What about pen testing as a service? So, yeah, there's the the pen testing market's been interesting. It's been be, become a bit commoditized, um, and so it's hard for consumers that are not in this business every day to kind of decipher what's what. Mostly what we've seen out of automated pen testing is it's good for certain scenarios. There are some companies that all they want to do is check a block and they say, we got a pen test done. Um, and, and it can be good for ongoing um, continuous automated pen testing where you actually do, maybe you do a, a, a human driven pen test twice a year or, or once a quarter or something like that, or on every major release of your software, whatever the case may be. But then you have automation going in, in the meantime, that can be a good use for it. The problem that we see is that um, we'll have, we'll have, you know, potential clients come to us and say, Hey, we just got this, we got this pen test. We don't really know what to do. A lot of times there's a lot of fluff in there. The, the idea mm -hmm. of saving money from an automated approach, we haven't really seen that be effective because the companies that, that don't have the, the resources to, to decipher this stuff, they, they take this huge data dump from the automated tools and they go start trying to, trying to tackle every vulnerability that's identified. So a good pen tester will show you really the, the areas that are truly exploitable in your environment, right? Just because a web application, a, you know, a tool says, Hey, there's, potential for a SQL injection here doesn't mean you need to rebuild the app. It's okay. Maybe that, maybe there's a form field that lets arbitrary characters go through, but that doesn't mean that the database is going to spit out a bunch of information based, you know, based on a tech, there are various layers of protection between them. So it, so as long as a company has, you know, a defense in depth approach, um, a lot of the automation stuff is, is limited. Um, again, I think it's, I think it's evolving. I think there it's getting better, but we have a ways to go. There are also issues within environments that take um, kind of human logic to identify still that uh, tools won't pick up. So for instance, we had a client uh, who, who came to us for a pen test. They had a uh, web application that when every, every time a user would sign up is financially based organization. And they, they, every time a user would sign up, their data would go off to a third party that would charge them 10 cents uh, a submission to validate that this is indeed a fact, indeed a real person and the financial information is valid and so on. So third party service, 10 cents a shot. Well, scanners and tools and stuff didn't pick up anything. There's nothing wrong with that per se, but our team found that, oh, hey, we can write a quick Python script here that can inject 5 million uh, new users into this platform within a matter of hours or less, right? And so at 10 cents a piece, that can start to get costly. So we did proof of concept, you know, run 10 users through kind of thing. Um, cost <laughs> Only 10? Yeah. Right? yeah, but here, you know, here's what could happen. So we need to stop, you know, so, so that kind of stuff sometimes um, won't be, won't be flagged. And we just need to look at, we need to look at it objectively, um, you know, from the, from the business logic perspective. So earlier I was mentioning um, that you know, my top three are a good password system um, and uh, MFA and patch management. Past that, what, what, what would you, you know, because we talked about like, th these are the things you need to do first, right? If, if you're concerned about the security of your environment, th these are the things you need to do first. What would you do after that? Mm -hmm. 
Well, most breaches occur because of well-meaning but unaware individuals. <laughs> so this, and this is a tough one because if I if I could give a condensed list of top ten, that would be ideal. But the the reality is, there's a lot that goes into policy and and process around how we use our computing devices. Mm -hmm. So thinking through that, um, a lot of times it's um, the uh, old user accounts aren't deprovisioned, right? Somebody leaves the company and HR isn't communicating with IT and, and then those accounts get compromised and nobody knows about it. So it's stuff like that. So I, I'd say um, if, if this is a big category, but your policies and procedures and standards documentation for the organization is is so critical because that's going to encompass a lot. Um, I, if you're referring more to technical controls specifically, then absolutely, you know, your backups and such. Um, I think that, that there's, um, another, well, and all the major frameworks call for this is the, the one of the first things they're going to say to do is inventory and control of your assets, whether that's hard, hardware and software, both. Um, a lot of organizations struggle with knowing exactly what they have in their environment. And so if a rogue device is coming in there or it, and it could just be, you know, somebody's tired of working through the controls that are set up on their work computer. So they bring their laptop and plug it in and, um, and now they're on the network and, and who knows what their kids were doing on social media with that, you know, a couple hours ago. So those types of things need to be thought through. Um, but I, I would say that, um, the, the, the human element um, is the biggest thing. If you, if I had to pick one piece, it'd be staff awareness training. Yeah. Sure. I, I, I think that's, I think I would completely agree with you. Um, I, you know, I, I am a, like if my choices are build really good defenses against mistakes versus train everybody, which mistakes not to make, I'm going to go with the first, not the second, but you, you, but you have to do it, right? You have to train the users. The problem with people <laughs> It's that. Where do I start? Right. Well, first yep. off, there's always new people. Second, yep. we are incredibly. We're just we're just flawed. So so really, if we could just get rid of all the people, we'd be um, good to go. You know. Yeah. Yeah, you're good to go. Yeah. Um. I mean, we all know that AI doesn't make mistakes. So once we replace everyone on the planet with some sort of piece of AI, <laughs> right. uh, there will be no more hacking. This podcast um, brought to you by AI. <laughs> 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 Absolutely. No, I, I remember that. I remember uh, back again that that bank that I that I um, worked at, we were constantly we constantly did user training. And one of the things that I remember that, that, that you were always told in the regular training that we went to was no one in the, you know, the IT department, no one will ever call you and ask you for your password ever. Right. And then the next day, we would always call them and ask them for their password, and like twenty percent of them would give it to us. It was like, oh yeah, it, it was just like, oh, it's it's it's. We've been let in. We've been let into. I uh, would do physical intrusion testing from time to yeah, time yeah. from a data security perspective, though. So we've been let into buildings, you know, tailgating and that sort of thing during business hours just looking like we're supposed to be there kind of thing and and you know throw that thumb drive in a in a computer um even led into um you know network rooms and and server rooms i mean it's it's um 
pretty amazing. But yeah, the the unaware is generally well-meaning, but you know, unaware individual is is always going to be the biggest risk, and that's that's where we see most most attacks come through, um, especially those companies that are on. Um, and well, I want to put this out there because you're on cloud services that does not make you secure. Right. Um, so those, those companies, <laughs> those companies that, um, think that, Hey, we're on Google workspace or we're on office 365. So, you know, Google or Microsoft is taking care of our security. Um, that if we're, if we're, you know, talking about a list of things to do, um, another cr critical mistake is that a lot of these mid market and smaller companies are on these environments and it's, it's crazy things like they set up the, you know, the person that started the company 15 years ago, um, you know, have, has their, their normal email account is also the administrator to that company's account. And, um, that when, once that gets breached, of course, all kinds of things happen. We've seen cryptocurrency accounts stolen, um, a domain names hijacked, uh, from the registrars and moved to, um, move to overseas registrars and getting a ransom to get it, you know, demanding a ransom to get it back, that kind of thing. Um, we we've seen, you know, and from there pivoting to other cloud services like Dropbox and such. So that's more toward the very small company side. Um, usually they're, they're more sophisticated than that, but I wanted to dispel that myth. I'd say that make sure that your cloud service environments, they, they can be set up to be very well secured, most organizations are not leveraging the the full potential of their security and they're not provisioning accounts properly. So if we think about principle of least privilege, we want to give people only what they need to do their job day to day and then have a methodology in place so they can escalate their access if they need it in unique circumstances. Um, but a lot of times companies are just giving everybody the kind of the keys to the kingdom. So once their account gets breached, now the attacker can get to a lot more um, than they could have otherwise, and the, the damage goes further that way. Yeah, but it's so Persona, much easier, Zach, if you give access to everyone. You know? Right. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Just uh, there, open up your firewalls to yeah. any any. Just let all the traffic there, through. There was a famous GDPR case in uh, Spain, I think it was maybe Portugal, and it was a hospital. And um, the, it, it was one of the first big GDPR fines. And what they had done in the hospital was to make administration easy. They made everybody a doctor. <laughs> so that's, that's everybody nice. that worked at the hospital had doctor level access so they could see any record of any patient anytime. Uh, <laughs> and they were like, basically the GDPR, you know, the commission basically said, you clearly didn't even try. Right. You, you clearly you, you never even heard of the concept of least privilege. Uh, we you know, we find you guilty and, and, and find them. I don't know. It's a couple hundred million dollars or something. Uh, Prasanna, can you think of um, another? So Zach was saying that uh, make sure to uh, make sure that your cloud services are secured or properly configured for security. Can make you sure think to back of it up. we would add to that? Yeah, <laughs> make exactly. sure to back it up. Exactly. Because we like Microsoft 365 or Google Workspaces, right? They don't care about restoring and recovering your environment to a well-known point. All they care about is making sure their service is up to date, keeping recovery copies to make sure that. But they don't have those copies for your benefit. Yeah, this, Zach, <laughs> the, 
the the thing of you know and i think in the security world we're like uh you know mfa is like man if you don't have mfa at this point i i don't even know what to tell you right uh in in the backup world this is one of those things where it's like i i don't know what to tell you if you think that microsoft is backing up your data right um <laughs> and I, I don't care what your your tam said to you your your technical account manager i don't care what you read on some blog somewhere please go grab your service agreement uh, and find the word backup and, and recovery in there anywhere because it because it isn't there right uh, and also look up uh, Microsoft has what they call the shared responsibility model and persona they're not the only ones with that are they or is that just no. that's not just their term is it that's not just yeah no so basically they show that they're responsible for the infrastructure and the availability of the service and they're like data you right 100% the customer and still I have people that go, I don't think I need to back up these important services. I think that's going to be um, uh, the next sort of frontier. It already is starting to be. They're starting to go after services like 365 from a ransomware perspective. And I think at some point, hopefully in the next few years, people will start realizing once enough companies lose everything, uh, or are forced to pay a ransom to get their um, important you know, company communications back from their SaaS provider. Uh, once somebody loses, you know, everything they've ever put into Salesforce, right? Um, and and they're they're forced to pay a ransom to get it back. Um, maybe this will get better. Yeah. yeah. What What do you think, Zach? Yeah, well, yeah, absolutely. I think I think there's more and more enforcement of that as well. So you look at just um, getting a cyber insurance policy these days, for example, they're they're putting you through the ringer, and that's one of the key factors that you're going to need to have, right? Is is a backup system that's separate from your production environment where everybody's working. Now, um, yeah, I, I think we're going to see that. We're also going to see. Um, these different re regulations that are coming out. It's the compliance requirement of the week coming up at this point. <laughs> but um, yeah, they are absolutely enforcing more and more of these controls with that being one of them. Because, I mean, I think especially because of ransomware, that's what everybody thinks about. But I mean, there's just a, there's a common everyday business use case for it. You know, it could be the malicious employee that wipes a bunch of stuff before they leave. It could be somebody just unknowingly overwrites a bunch of files with old data and, and just having quick access to get that back. So it, it's not, it doesn't take a ransomware attack to have a reason to have a backup. It's, um, there, there are lots and lots of use cases, or we talked a little bit about disaster recovery before, um, that, you know, there's obvious implications there. So, um, I, I think, I think that's a big piece of it for sure. Preach it, Zach. Um, I could, <laughs> I could think, uh, so I used to administer, a, um, a pretty large Salesforce environment. And I remember one time, uh, where what I was trying to do was I was trying to format. So I'm pretty good with like text manipulation, being an old Unix guy. I was pretty good at that. And I downloaded, um, the entire database, which was like, I don't know, a couple million records. And I went and did my Unix magic on the uh, phone field. I was good at text manipulation. I was bad at Excel. And so I sorted the spreadsheet, but I didn't sort the whole spreadsheet. I just sorted like the phone numbers and I, which meant that I just scrambled all the phone numbers. <laughs> so, and then I uploaded 
that oh, no. uh, and basically in 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 a matter of a few minutes, I managed to give every contact in our uh, database the wrong phone number, some other random person's phone number, and luckily. Uh, I had, uh, this was before I had tried, this is a couple of years ago. I had tried unsuccessfully to find a decent backup service for Salesforce. And so the only thing I could do was like, a you know, an export of that, um, table. It was the, the, um, the leads table. And so luckily I had, I had saved the download that I had made before I mucked it all up. And then I was able to fix it. But that's the kind of thing. Like you said, it doesn't take a ransomware case. It could just be a, we'll call it a Curtis. Um, <laughs> we, we were talking about humans being the, the, the weakest link, right? It's, it's, yeah. it's all of us, you know, it's, it's yeah. not, um, it, it's not just, uh, it's not just people that have, that are, you know, not technically inclined or, or, or anything like that. It, it's anybody and everybody. I mean, we, there's lots of cybersecurity professionals still fall for scams and different things out yeah. there. I mean, they've, you know, given out data on forums and things like that on the dark web, you know, it's, it's just, it's crazy what goes on, but yeah, you're not alone there. Yeah. Or in the case yeah, of Curtis, I, instead of calling it the Curtis, maybe we'll call it the overconfident person. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's funny. It's funny. Earlier, when 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 Zach was talking about, um, you know, it's it's the well-meaning person uh, that just makes a, a mistake. I was going to float the idea of calling that a persona and see, seeing if we can, you know, like like nowadays we we have the term Karen, and that means yeah. a specific thing. If we could, I just it would be really cool if like the well-meaning person that manages to screw up everything, if we could just call that a persona. We'll call him Steve. We'll call him Steve. <laughs> Sorry for their, if there's any Steves listening. Yeah, there, there's one or two. I know for a fact. Um, well, Zach, it's been it's been great having you on, um, and um, I wanted to, uh, uh, you know, thanks for the insight. Hey, my pleasure. Great, great chatting with you both, and um, yeah, looking forward to doing this again sometime. And persona, uh, great as always. Thank you, Curtis and Zach. It was nice to meet you. By the way, uh, if people wanted to sort of get more insights and to, or figure out what they should do around cybersecurity, how do they get in touch with you and your company? Yeah, they can they can check out silentsector.com is our website. And then we have our book, Cyber Rants, available on Amazon. And the Cyber Rants podcast, um, information across all those uh, places and um, you know, feel free to reach out anytime awesome. and uh, on LinkedIn as well. I'll put a link to I'll put a link to my episode in the because uh, I know I was a guest there at one point. I'll put a link to my episode in our <laughs> in our show notes. Yeah, because our people they just want to hear me talk. <laughs> 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 All right. Well, you know, speaking of people that just want to hear me talk. Uh, I want to thank you to our listeners. Uh, you are why we do this. And remember to subscribe so that you can restore it all.
it'll be complete.